All right, if you would please open up your Bibles to Matthew. No, let's not open to Matthew. Let's open to Luke. Luke chapter 9. We are on lesson number 84. Barriers to commitment. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, hallowed is thy name. How we just bless your name and and praise you for being a holy God, a righteous God, a just God, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of um, compassion, a God who didn't just stay in heaven and let man guess who you were, what you were like, if there were many gods, if we came from a big bang, or if we were created with a purpose and a plan. You are a God who revealed yourself to us because you loved us. You created us for your good pleasure. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you revealed us you to us through your word, your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through your written word. And I pray, Father, now that as we open your word to look at your word, your son, that we would um, just magnify him, learn of him as he has commanded us so that we might become more conformed into his image, for that is what it is all about. Help us, Lord, to stay focused on what your Holy Spirit has to teach us through this passage of Scripture, very, very convicting passage about discipleship. We pray that he will have his will and his way with each of each heart here, for we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. At this point in our Lord's life, after walking in Galilee and presenting himself over and over and over again as the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, the time had come for the Lord Jesus to leave. To leave where? To leave the northern province of Galilee. By and large, he had been rejected there. The people had wanted to crown him an earthly king so that he would deliver them from Rome, but they misunderstood who he really was as their spiritual deliverer and as their spiritual king. Most of his followers, we saw in John chapter 6, after he delivered the Bread of Life sermon, most of his followers had turned from him and walked no more with him. He had given such Galilean cities as Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin unprecedented opportunities to come to him in saving faith. And yet, as I said, by and large, the Galilean people did not know who he was. They did not submit to him as Lord. Now, of course, here and there, there were people who did. But overall, they did not recognize him as their Lord and Savior. They merely wanted to personally benefit from his miracles. They enjoyed listening to his unique way of teaching, which was so refreshing compared to the rigid, unauthoritative, lifeless, boring, burdensome teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. So it was a very sad day for Galilee because Jesus was leaving their coasts. It was a very sad day. What was even sadder is that they didn't know that it was a sad day for them when Jesus, the Son of God, left their midst. 
They didn't know that he would never return again. It tells us in the book of John that the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand and Jesus was now about to leave Galilee. Actually, I think in our passage this morning, he is on his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem to attend the feast there. He never, ever again would return to his hometown province. I thought about the fact that it was a sad day. Remember back when Jesus had gone to his own hometown city or town of Nazareth? On two different occasions, he gave them, he's a God of the second chance, he gave them two opportunities to know who he was. And they rejected him on both accounts. And he left them. He couldn't even do any miracles there because of their unbelief. It was a sad day for Nazareth when Jesus left them. And they didn't know it, did they? They didn't have a clue. It was a sad day when he left Gadara. Remember how he had crossed over the Sea of Galilee and a storm had hit? And he got over there and he, he cast a, demon, a legion of demons out of the demoniac of Gadara. And the people were so upset because they were more interested in their pig prophets than they were in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they asked him to leave and he left. He doesn't stay around where he isn't wanted. It was a sad day for Gadara when Jesus left their coasts, and yet they didn't know it, did they? Here again, it's a sad day for Galilee. When he left, he would never return again, and yet they didn't have a clue how sad it was. And I thought about the occasion when we get to, I believe it's right before the Lord spoke the um, Olivet Discourse, and he left the temple for the last time. And he looked out over Jerusalem. I believe his arms were outstretched and he had tears in his voice as he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he said, You know, how oft I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her little chickens. And what? Ye would not. Not that she could not accept me, but she would not accept me. And then he went on to say, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He left the temple. It was a sad day. It was a sad day when he left Judea. You know, Jerusalem, Judea to the south. And when he left Israel. It was a sad day when he left this world. (laughs) Actually, you know, God used it, what man meant for evil, for good. So anyway, we come now to the near end of the Lord's ministry in Galilee. And as we continue in our chronological study of his life, we're going to read... Well, you can look right now since you're in Luke 9 at verse 51 where it says, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. That's speaking of not only when he would be received up on the cross, but when he would be received up in his uh, resurrection and ascension into heaven. It says he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint. To go to Jerusalem. Aren't you glad that he had his focus on that hill called Calvary in Jerusalem? But he, aren't you glad he didn't get his focus off of Calvary and get sidetracked? It's, we're actually going to be talking about a verse that, again, Jesus exemplified so well with his own life. If you look at verse 62, he said, No man having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad that once Jesus put his hand to the plow, he didn't look back? And he knew what was laid straight ahead. I mean, he knew full well what awaited him in Jerusalem. 
He's already predicted that he would suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers and that he would be crucified. And, you know, he knew the false trials, the mock trials that they would put him through and all the suffering that he would go through. And yet he did not let anything whatsoever stop him from completing the work that he had set out to do. He was committed to his task. He had put his hands to the plow and he would not be tempted to turn back. So he was on his way down the road to rejection. In this lesson, which I have entitled Barriers to Commitment, we're going to see that as he left Capernaum of Galilee, because remember the whole sermon on how to be uh, children of the kingdom, what did I call it? How, how, how Christians are to get along with one another, which we just finished last week, was given where? In Capernaum, probably in Peter's house there in Capernaum. So as he left Capernaum of Galilee to begin his final determined journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, he experienced at least three encounters with would-be disciples. I call them would-be disciples because I don't know if they did become disciples. We'll look at, you know, their encounter, his encounters with them, but I'm not sure if they did become his disciples. I hope that all three of them did become his disciples um, and became part of the 70. Look ahead, look ahead again. I'll read the passage in a minute. I haven't gotten there yet. But look at Luke 10, verse 1. Right after we're going to talk about the Lord's encounters with these three men, well, not really chronologically, but according to Luke's gospel, he talks about uh, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also. You know the Lord appointed, besides his 12 disciples who were apostles, he had 70 other disciples who he, would, he sent out in pairs, you know, two by two, to go and preach the gospel. I hope that these three men we will be looking at today, these would-be disciples, all became part of the 70, but I can't prove that they did. All right, but they may have. In this lesson, we're talking about barriers to commitment, not barriers to salvation. This is all about discipleship. This is not about salvation. So we're going to have an illustration through the encounters the Lord had with these three men. We're going to have an illustration of how real the demands of discipleship are according to the Lord's criteria for discipleship. Not my criteria, not our criteria, but the Lord's criteria. He had stated, remember, that the one who would be his committed disciple, would have to deny himself, what else? Take up his cross and follow him. What is a disciple, by the way? What is a disciple? A learner. That's what we're all in here. We, we are really being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, <laughs> um, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is uh, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember that it is he, Jesus, who determines what following him will involve. It's not us. So if we are genuinely serious about being his disciple, being a learner, and being a follower of Christ, it must be on his terms, <laughs> not our own. <clears throat> I don't think, you know, if I was determining the um, terms... I don't think I'd be quite as radical as the Lord Jesus, would you? You know, deny yourself. Ooh, that's a little strict. You know, die to self, take up my cross. 
hmm, I'd probably be a little more lenient on myself. But uh, we, he calls the shots, not me and not you and I. He call, and by the way, he calls every believer to a total commitment to his service. It's his desire that every saved person have this co- total commitment to discipleship. But only a few, really, are willing to hurdle all the barriers, silence all the excuses, and follow him in true discipleship. And we see that compared to the population of our community and how many women could be here this morning. Most of them have excuses and barriers and other reasons, all kinds of reasons, why they can't come here and why they can't learn of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the three men <clears throat> briefly mentioned, very briefly mentioned in Luke 9, verses 57 to 62, we find three common barriers to a total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are in order, I have called them, the barrier of present resources, which is basically what we could say, the, the barrier of uh, creature comforts, our comfort zone. Then there is the barrier of future riches, and there is the barrier of past relationships. So let's begin by looking at the barrier of present resources, and for this we look at the first man who, by the way, I'm not going to read Matthew's passage for this because he doesn't give us the same amount of material, but Matthew does want add one thing that Luke doesn't. And Matthew tells us that this first man was a scribe. Okay, so remember that when we look at this first man in verses 57 and 58. It says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way. What is in the way? They're on the way to Jerusalem. It's on the way to the cross. It came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man, and Matthew tells us he was a scribe, said unto him, unto Jesus, Lord, Circle that. He calls him Lord. All three of these men call the Lord, Lord. He says, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. That's all we know about the encounter with this first would-be disciple. Now, he was a scribe. What was a scribe? A scribe was a teacher of the people. He was a student of the law. It was very rare, very unique, very radical for a scribe to come to Jesus and say, Lord, to begin with, to call him Lord. And uh, he also, over in Matthew, it says he called him master, which means master teacher or rabbi. Uh, And for him to say, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. He was, in doing that, this man was deciding against the vast majority of his own peers. Apparently, this man, a student of the law, had somewhere along the line become convinced by the words and the works of Jesus that he was indeed who he claimed to be, that he was the promised Messiah. And he, was, he humbled himself to want to... He was a teacher of the people... And yet he was willing to follow Christ and let Christ be his teacher. He was willing to learn from him. He knew also that his decision to follow Jesus would be costly to him personally as far as 
losing his own peers was concerned. Perhaps even his own family would say, what do you think you're doing here? This is crazy. But he didn't seem to mind. Scribes were educated. They, were, they had to go to all the rabbinic schools. They had to go to the seminary of their day. They had to memorize large portions of the law, the Old Testament law, large portions of the Talmud. They studied the Talmud, the Torah. They were the educated and scholarly class of Jewish society. And yet, who were the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, by and large? They were... They were just your common workers, your common laborers. Uh, many of them were rugged, rough Galilean fishermen. One was a tax collector. One was a zealot. I mean, they weren't your upper echelon of society by any means. But this scribe was willing to forsake his association with upper-class society and put in with this lower bunch just so he could follow Jesus. You see, he must have thought that Jesus was the most superior teacher he had ever heard. And he was right, wasn't he? You don't get any better than Jesus as far as anything is concerned. He yearned to follow him. He yearned to learn from him. And this is unique because, as we know, Jesus opposed the traditions and the misinterpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he didn't pull any punches in telling them so. So this was, this was a very unique man here. And therefore, the thing, all these things indicate that he had, this man, had truly pa- placed his faith in Jesus. He called him Lord, and he said that he was willing to give up quite a bit to go whithersoever Jesus went. He was willing to give up um, in the area of relationships. He was willing to forfeit relationships. He was willing to forfeit even his own reputation in Jewish society and among his peers. He said... He said that he was willing to be committed. And I hope, I hope, I don't know, I guess we'll find out one day in heaven, I hope he didn't say he was willing to go whithersoever Jesus went because he saw that Jesus' face was set now to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. I hope that this man didn't think that when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, finally, you know, he's going to do something about who he is, he'll he'll do a few of his miracles down there and the people will see how powerful he is and they'll all recognize his authority when they hear him teach and then he can ride in on on the Lord's coattails. I hope that wasn't his motive, that he thought when Jesus comes into his prominence, there I will be, you know, and I'll be not not top sheep, but top scribe. (laughs) I hope that wasn't his motive. But the man had made a very large promise, but had he truly counted the cost? Was he really willing to to deny himself and take up his cross to follow Jesus in total commitment? Would he know that if Jesus was going to Jerusalem in order to be mocked and spit on and have a, a crown of thorns placed upon his head and be crucified, would he still follow him whithersoever he went? into persecution and suffering and all that follows? Was he willing to overcome his present resources? Jesus responded to this scribe's statement, his declaration of commitment, not by questioning the man's sincerity. I believe the man was really sincere when he, when he said this to the Lord. But Jesus responded by mentioning something that maybe the man had not 
considered. And apparently the man had not considered this because I don't think the Lord would have mentioned it otherwise. Remember, the Lord can read the heart. He knows what, what every one of us has as a barrier to total commitment. Now, with some of us, it might be present comforts. To some of us, it might be past relationships. To some, it might be present, I mean, future riches. Uh, the, um, the rich young lawyer who came to Jesus. You see, Jesus knew what every man's idol was. So he said to the man, you know, well, if you're willing to follow me, then you need to go and what? Sell everything. Not because all of us are asked to do that, but he knew in this man's situation, that's, that was drawing the He drew the line there. He wouldn't go that far. So apparently Jesus knew that this man would have a problem with giving up his creature comforts. And so he said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not to where to lay his head. What he was doing was, of course, cautioning this man about true discipleship. Was this man willing to sacrifice to the point of being identified with one who was so lowly that he didn't have a place of his own to call home? You know, the Lord Jesus never had a home of his own. Now, he lived for a while in his parents' home, but he never had a home of his own, did he? He didn't own, own a bed and he didn't have his own pillow to put his head on, as do even the foxes. You know, a fox might run around, run around all day long, but where does it go at night? It has its home to go to. It has a hole in the ground. Birds, same thing. They have their nests. They have their home. Was this w- man willing to go to such a depth of, of poverty for the Lord Jesus Christ that he was even willing to give up his, his bed? Maybe he had a nice... Um, Mattress with that extra padding on the top that they do now, you know, and a goose down comforter and a really fluffy pillow. Was he willing to give up that to follow Jesus whether, whithersoever he went? Was he willing to fully count the cost of discipleship and accept the self-denial and the sacrifice and the suffering that would go along with it? You know, scribes lived above the ordinary level of comfort. They were, they were wealthier, scribes and Pharisees. The religious rulers were wealthier than the common man. And, you know, we think of the scribe, but all of us, I'm sure, have nicer homes than the scribe did. Here in America, we are so spoiled. We're spoiled rotten. I'm the first to admit it. I'm spoiled rotten by the king-size bed that I have. You know, would I be willing to give up my king-size bed? I complain sometimes if I have to go down to a queen-size in a motel. Isn't that, that's terrible. Terrible, terrible. We're so spoiled. Should all, this man might think, well, should all my years of hard work not be rewarded? You know, all my schooling and all that work on memorizing the scripture and everything I have done to get where I am, uh, should all of that not be rewarded by some kind of enjoyment of earthly resources? The Lord wants all of us to fully count the cost following him whithersoever he went for this man would have meant that some days he wouldn't have anything to lay on except the the ground or or some places had much grass some places were just rough and rugged sure those guys just had whatever they had i don't know what did they have did they even have a blanket their outer garment was it yeah exactly and they maybe would have, uh, I think of Jacob, you know, where he had a, a rock as a pillow. Some days as they, and you know, they all probably had blisters on their feet after all the walking they did everywhere. Um, 
Was he willing to have the rain hit his face and not even have an umbrella? To have the sun beat down on them and get um, skin cancer and, you know, hot and sweaty and on other days have it be cold and miserable. Just think, would we be willing to do all that? That's, you know, really, wow. He's really asking this man to, to um, give up quite a bit, to give up his earthly home. Was he willing to humble himself to the point of giving up his rights to have a bed to sleep in at night? The man needed to know, just like you and I need to know, that discipleship for Christ is not all about pleasure. It's not all about smooth sailing. There would be, and there are, a lot of difficulties to endure. Jesus offers his salvation free, doesn't he? Salvation is totally free. It is without price. There is nothing we can do whatsoever to earn it. But discipleship carries with it a price. There is a battle to be fought. We are in a spiritual warfare. There's a battle to be fought. There's a race to run. There's a work to be done and many, many things to be endured. And I've got news for you. You better be telling this to your young people because it is going to get very quickly worse for them. There's not going to be any more riding on the fence very shortly. They need to understand there are going to be many things to be endured. They need to understand that being a disciple of Christ is, is not going to be easy. We've had it really pretty cushy. Jesus tells it like it is. He doesn't tell us these things in order to discourage us, but he tells us for us to know the truth. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. He tells it like it is. He doesn't want anyone to follow him under false pretenses. That's the problem with much, much of Christendom today. Many people are joining on the Jesus bandwagon, but under false pretenses. And therefore, like the seed that fell on the stony ground, when a little trouble comes along, they, get ch- uh, they die. They wither and die. The birds come along, or the, the sun of persecution comes out, and they wither. And, you know, that's, there's a lot of churches that are, are giving false, false pretenses about following Jesus. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. So this first man needed to weigh his offer, his offer, his own offer to Jesus with all of the facts of what he was taking in hand. Christian discipleship does not mean that we tack Jesus onto our present way of life. You know, it does not mean that we add Jesus to our schedule. Oh, let's see, it's Sunday. Yes, this is Tack on Jesus Day. So I go to church today. What it means is that we tack our lives onto him. You know, he, uh, we work our schedules around him. He is the vine. We are what? We are the branches. We abide in him. We follow him. He doesn't follow us. He doesn't follow Catherine all around every day and say, mm, have you got time for me right now, Catherine? I am to be following him. My whole life and my whole schedule, my priorities are to center on him. He's the vine. Many Christians actually act <clears throat> like they are the vine. And he is just one of the branches of their life. But that's not the way it is. You know, if we follow him. If he was hated by the world, guess what? 
If you're loved by the world, something is wrong with your testimony. If he was hated by the world, we are going to be hated by the world. Does the media, does the world, does Hollywood, it, does it hate Christians? Absolutely, it does. It's very evident, and it's getting more evident. That's why I say we really, really need to be preparing our young people, the next generation. Very concerned about not, not only my children, who are still young, but my grandchildren especially, if the Lord doesn't come back soon. And I do believe he's coming back soon. If he denied himself, guess what? We need to deny ourselves. He, if he was a servant-hearted, compassionate shepherd, willing to humble himself for others, to give up his rights, to give up his comforts, his creature comforts, his Christian liberties for others, guess what? We're to follow in his footsteps. We are to be willing to do all of those things. Well, we don't know if this first man, this scribe, was willing or not to give up his present resources because no further mention is made of him in the scripture. He may be one of the 70. I hope for his sake that he was, but we don't know. What we do know is that for many Christians, giving up their creature comforts and sacrificing some of their own present resources is just too high a cost to totally commit for service to Jesus Christ. They are too busy looking down at what they have worked so hard to get and they're not willing to give it up for him. They draw a line. You know, they'll give this much, but no more. If, if commitment interferes with their own comfort and their own pleasure and their own schedules and their own priorities, then they won't go any further. And this is the part, part of the problem with so much of the modern-day watering down of the gospel message and so much sugarcoating of the, of the gospel and the prosperity gospel message and the self-esteem gospel message and the emerging church gospel message and all those false gospel messages that are out there. People in churches have come to the conclusion that they are doing well in God's eyes if they merely give lip service to Jesus Christ and attend church once in a while. They know nothing at all about true commitment. Look in your churches. Look around. It's always just like, uh, it used to be 10% of the people do 100% of the work in churches, but I think it's even lower than that now. <laughs> Most people do not know anything about tr true commitment. You know, they pat themselves on the back if they show up Sunday morning for church and that's it. The rest of the week is theirs. Um, they know nothing about discipleship that involves self-denial, sacrifice, and cross-bearing. And our world today is full. That's why I believe we are definitely in the age of church history that is called the Laodicean age. We, we, our Christendom is full of half-hearted, lukewarm Christians, many of them just professing Christians who allow personal barriers to provide them with ready excuses for why they cannot serve Jesus Christ 100%. I'm not talking about full-time Christian work, but each of us is called to live our lives 100% for Jesus. Everything we do, whatever we do or say, or even whatever we eat, <laughs> everything is to be centered on him. He's the vine. It's all about serving him. Most people don't know a thing about that. They're just full of excuses of why they have to do this and do that, but they don't have time for Jesus. <clears throat> Now, before we go on to the second man, 
who the Lord encountered, I want to just say a few more words about personal conviction. (laughs) We may sit here this morning and listen to this lesson on discipleship and commitment and think about someone else who we, we surely know isn't very committed. I'm sure all of you have invited other ladies to Bible study and you've heard all the excuses in the book, haven't you? I know I've told you this before, but the one that beats beats the cake, is that the expression? Takes the cake. <laughs> well, you have to beat a cake first to, before you bake it. Takes the cake, that's what she said, takes the cake, is when this woman told me that she had to milk her goats. She couldn't come to Bible study because she had to milk her goats. I mean, you know, just, you have to milk goats early in the morning. Bible study wasn't until 9.30, so. But anyway, we might be sitting here thinking about somebody else who just is not very committed, and we're pretty sure they're a Christian, but, you know, they're just not willing to give up the things of this world to change their present lifestyle in order to fit Jesus in, you know, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They're more concerned about their comforts, their priorities, their golf games, whatever else people do on Tuesday morning, you know. So it's easy for us to think about them, but let's not do that, okay? This message was so convicting to me, I almost don't, I just don't even really like standing up here teaching on it. But let's think not of the other person. Let's think of ourselves. Each of us, focus on ourselves. How committed are we? I mean, how truly committed are we to living for Jesus Christ? How many excuses, for example, do we come up with, some of us, week after week, for why we can't do a simple 10 homework questions to get into the word ourselves. Do we come up with excuses and say, well, I I just didn't have time this week. What? 10 questions? You know what I would have said to my children when they were in school if they couldn't do 10 homework questions for an entire week? They would have been in trouble. (laughs) They would have, I mean, where would the commitment be? There wouldn't be any commitment there at all. And you know who we're doing this for? You're not doing it for anybody but for yourself and and Jesus Christ it's for him it's to learn of him it's obedience you know if we were studying another book maybe well it's all of him but nothing we could study would be more obedient to what he told us to do learn of him how committed are we when it comes to spending time for Jesus Christ think about your weekly schedule how much time do you spend in front of the television how much time do you spend on preserving your body and maintaining your body. How much time do you spend on shopping? How much time do you spend on this and that compared to how much time you spend with Jesus Christ, learning of him, speaking to him through, you know, in prayer? What have you truly been willing to sacrifice since you told Jesus that you wanted to follow him? And think of time. It doesn't have to be monetary, but time. Are you using your talents? Are you using your gifts, your God-given spiritual gifts for him? Have you honestly rearranged your own schedule and your own priorities in order to serve him and to please him? Are you, or are you like the vast majority of lukewarm Christians? You merely tack Jesus onto your life when and where he conveniently fits into your own comfort zone. And if so, that is not true discipleship. True discipleship involves participation in his work, identification with his task, 
and with his suffering, you know, that I may know him and the fellowship uh, for his suffering and uh, fellowship with his, I mean, uh, partaking in his sacrifice. It involves growing in grace through a disciplined life of prayer and Bible study. You know, you need to be disciplined if you're going to be a disciple. Almost like the same word, discipline. You can't be lazy and be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? A lot of Americans are not disciplined. A lot of Americans are not, are are very lazy. Bottom line. And sadly, it's even in the church. In... um, Discipleship involves also financial support of his church, of his work, of missionaries, and, of course, it involves regular fellowship with the body of believers, and it involves witnessing to others. It involves a heart willingness to endure hardships, loneliness. Many times being a Christian can be lonely. Personally, I understand that. Family rejection. Uh, Persecution. It can involve frustration. I get frustrated every time I watch the news, the media. Very frustrated. It can involve poverty and pain for the sake of one's service for Jesus Christ. Anyway, we're not doing too well because we're only on the second man. Let's look at him very quickly. 5960. And he said unto another, as Jesus said unto another, follow me. But he, the other one, said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. One reason I think all three of these guys are saved is not only because they all called Jesus Lord, but Jesus wouldn't tell them to go and preach the king, you know, go and preach the kingdom of God to somebody who wasn't saved. <clears throat> Notice this man's excuses. But first. Underline those words. We'll see that the third guy says the same words. But first. In the case of the second would-be disciple, Jesus is the one who took the initiative in the call to commitment. You know, the first man went to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. This one, Jesus came to him and he said, what? Follow me. Who else had he said, follow me to? Some of his disciples. He said it to Philip. He said it to Matthew when he was Levi. He said it to Peter and Andrew when he said, Follow me and I will make you to be, I will make you fishers of men. <clears throat> now, unlike the first man, the scribe, who was very enthusiastic about his faith, so enthusiastic that he came to Jesus saying he wanted to follow him, the second man seems more somber. <clears throat> and he had to be asked to volunteer. <clears throat> the response of this first man. Um, who also called Jesus Lord, was positive. It was a positive response in that he basically said, yes, I do want to follow you, but only after he first did something else. And what was that something else? Bury his father. So do notice the words but and first. Okay, I'll come to Bible study with you, but first (laughs) I got to do this. His response reveals to us another barrier to discipleship, and that is the barrier of future riches. And I know you wonder, why do I say future riches when all the man asked was to be allowed to go home and bury his father? Some of you already know this. I mean, to us, this seems very, very reasonable. Of course, Jesus, you've got to give this man an opportunity to go home and bury his dead, his dead father. You know, Bible critics love to take the Lord's words, let the dead bury their dead, 
and use that passage to show how harsh and how cruel Jesus is. You know, that he so seemingly heartlessly did not even allow this man or, or tell this man that he could bury his own father. But when we consider the situation as it really was, we see a very different picture. Jesus was calling this man to total discipleship for him. But to that invitation to a continuous committed relationship, the man showed hesitancy. The man showed reluctance. He said that he would first like to go and bury his old man. Well, the problem was, <laughs> what? He wasn't dead yet. That's rushing it, isn't it? <clears throat> they made fun of me because I told my husband that right before they t rolled him down for surgery, I said, if you die, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> uh, t now, to you and I, this, this seems reasonable, but what we need to realize, of course, is that the man's request did not mean that his father was dead. If his father was dead, the son had absolutely no business being out there somewhere where Jesus approached him and said, follow me. Because in, those, you know, in that climate back in those days, and even today, I have friends who are Indian, and uh, one has just recently lost his father, and the other one no, his mother, and, and the, the female has just recently lost her father. And they, they couldn't make it back to India for the funerals because they bury them the very day, if possible. If they've died during the day, they bury them that very day because they don't embalm and do all like we do in this country. Who was that woman that just died? Oh, I can't even think of her name. Isn't that awful? And she was all over the news. Anna Nicole Smith. You know. Oh, isn't that awful? Leave her around for weeks. <clears throat> anyway, they bury them the same day. So uh, the fact is that this man's father was not, was not yet dead. His excuse was merely a pretext for delay. He wanted to follow Jesus, but only after he received what was rightfully his. You see, that was a common phrase back in those days, bury my father. <clears throat> and it is even used today to refer to a, a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was then distributed to the offspring. Just a few years ago, there was a missionary over in Turkey and um, he asked a rich, young Turkish man to join him on a trip over to Europe because along the way he wanted to disciple this young Turkish man. But the young that he couldn't go because he first must bury his father. And the missionary said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that your father had just died. But the Turk went on to explain to him that his father was very much alive and very healthy. But it was an ex the expression, bury my father, was used to mean that he needed to stay at home and fulfill his responsibility to the family until his father did die and he received his share of the inheritance. So, everything in this second man's encounter makes sense when we understand that the son was asking for permission to return home and stay with his father until his father did die, and then he received what? The inheritance. You see, a son would forfeit his inheritance, usually, if he did not stay with his father until he died. So then what we have in the case of this second would-be disciple is the barrier of future riches. Rather than looking at his present comforts, you know, his cushy bed and his fluffy pillow, uh, this man was looking ahead to the future 
cushy bed and fluffy pillow he would have when his father would die, and he wasn't willing to, to forfeit that. He did not want to risk losing his inheritance by fully committing himself to Jesus. He wanted to be associated with him by name, but uh, his focus was really on his future prosperity rather, rather than on his service to Christ. But Jesus says in another passage, he says, If any man come to me and hate not his father. Now, you know, you, of course, that this doesn't mean you have to hate your father to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But you love Christ so much, in comparison, your love toward your family looks like hate. That's what he says. He says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife, or we could say and husband and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that's pretty radical, isn't it? He says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When Jesus responded to this man, he wasn't being harsh, as the critics say. He was being honest. What he said, he said in truth, and he said in love. He saw through the man's partial commitment, his divided attention, his barrier problem. And he demanded that the man act now and not hesitate. You know, not wait for a future time to serve him. Put first things first. Go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. You know, the Lord is coming soon. We need to redeem our time wisely. We don't have a lot of time left, I don't think. We never know. We just Last week we lost one of our own here, Mary. Wine, winer. Yes, Mary went wine. Wines. She went on to be with the Lord. I mean, we, we never know when we'll be. My husband could have been with the Lord this past week. But we need, to, we need to put first things first. It's in your book, Dr. Charles Ryrie said, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's not much vocabulary, but really profound. The main thing is to, it's in your book's, The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus was saying, let the world take care of their own matters. Let the spiritually dead take care of their things. But you who are not spiritually dead, you have a far higher calling in life. Did you know that? We've been called to the highest calling there is. We have been called to preach to the dead, each and every one of us. We've been called to preach to the dead the good news of how they can come alive and receive the free gift of eternal life. Such a privilege is a far greater inheritance than you could ever receive from your earthly fathers, even if your earthly father is the richest man in the world. This is a far greater inheritance. Besides, all of the inheritance and inheritances and all of the riches of this world are going to do what one day? Burn up. Everything is going to perish one day. All the things that we've spent a lifetime accumulating and then having yard sales to get rid of, (laughs) all those things are going to perish. None of it is going to matter one bit in the long run. The only thing that will matter is what is done for him. Only one life, so soon tis past. Only what is done for Christ will last. All right, you know, we, I wanted to add this because, oh boy, I'm going to run out of time, but we, we shouldn't be quitters either. You know, the call to discipleship, we think of most jobs as something 
that can be taken on, you know, think of a job, you can take it on, and then if you don't like the job, you can quit. You can, it can be dropped if, if it doesn't please you or if you don't earn enough money or whatever. Um, and there's no great issue involved. But when Jesus prese- presents the demands of his kingdom, he explained them as callings, a call to salvation, a call to discipleship. And he, as we've been seeing, demanded the most radical commitment. Followers of Jesus are never to see that as a job, a part-time or a temporary time occupation. It is a full-time commitment. We are to be his disciples until the day he takes us home. It's not something, we're not to be quitters. And how many Christians are quitters? You know, they'll volunteer for this and then, oh well, this has come along and I can't finish, I'm sorry. But discipleship for Christ is a full-time occupation. I'm telling myself that because I get tempted to quit a lot. All right, um, third man. All right, again, with this man, we don't know if he followed Jesus or not. Uh, If he did go and wait for his dad to die, I hope he didn't. Apparently, there was something the Lord really saw in him because he wanted to have him go out and preach the you know something of great value. He wanted him to be a preacher of the kingdom of God, so I hope the man was part of the 70. The third man, let's look at him. His barrier was of past relationships, and we read about him in verses 61, 62. It says, and another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but, notice the word but again, let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I could have outlined this I was sitting in church the other night, and I had made up another outline for these last two guys. The the second one, you could say, but first go bury father. And the third one, you could say, but first go bid farewell. Like that? (laughs) I have fun when the preacher's talking. I am listening. All right. So the first man was concerned about the present, Right? First man was concerned about his present creature comfort. Second man was concerned about the future, future riches. Now, this third man is hung up on the past, his past relationships. Now, again, his request sounds very reasonable. Of course, why wouldn't he be allowed to go back to his home and bid farewell to his family? But you see, again, Jesus saw the heart, and he knew that this man's barrier would be his family. If that man... It's kind of like Lot's wife, you know, look back. If, um, if this man went home, what do you think would have probably have happened? They probably would have talked to him. How many would-be missionaries do you think never made it to the fields right unto harvest because of family? Family who talked them out of it? I think this man's family, and Jesus knew this, I think this man's family would have talked him out of it. I think they would have said, oh, you can't be that fanatical. You can't leave the family business. You can't leave us. What are we going to do without you? No way. You're not going to do that. Now, were Peter, James, Andrew, John, the others, were they willing to leave behind family, occupation? Yes, they were. But the Lord knew that this man... And, you know, there's nothing wrong if this man didn't have a problem with that. Remember Levi? Jesus allowed him to go home and say goodbye to his family. He even even held a big feast. And Jesus blessed that feast with his own presence. So it wasn't like he, you know, it's a matter of willingness. Are we willing? Not all of us will be asked to sell everything we have. Not all of us will be asked to give up our, our families, our past, 
or um, our future or our creature comforts. You know, I hope he doesn't ask me to give up my king-size bed, but am I willing, if he asks me to do that, am I willing to be, to do it? And so this man obviously would have had a problem with his family. No man can take up his cross to follow Jesus if all the while his eyes are looking back on the alluring pleasures left behind in his home or in his business or in his former relationships. We, he must have all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our focus. Jesus will not share his throne with anyone. You know, even our children. Don't make your children your gods. Don't make them your idols or the bigger temptation, your grandchildren. <laughs> and, of course, all of this doesn't mean that we are to neglect our duties. You know, we can't use this, women, as an excuse to leave our husbands and go to the mission field. We don't use the, I mean, of course, we're to, to be a living example all the time before our husbands. We're to raise our children, you know, to, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The focus of our lives with our children and our grandchildren is to be centered, however, on Jesus, on teaching them about the Lord and about earthly things. Uh, in all that we do as we tend to our families, we... I mean, about heavenly things. Yeah, we don't want to be focused on earthly things. Thank you. <laughs> in all that we do, as we do tend to our families, we're to have ser- uh, service for Jesus as the focus. All right. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If we are looking back at past relationships, just like Lot's wife did, it demonstrates a divided heart. The farmer who begins to plow his field um, and takes his eyes off of that which lies ahead is going to make a very crooked, crooked, sloppy, messy furrow, isn't he? He doesn't, he can't turn behind him, especially when they had those old kind of plows that they did back in, in Christ's day. I mean, their focus had to be at a point ahead of them so that they would plow a very, very straight line. If we get our eyes focused off of Jesus and eternity, you know, we're to go down the straight and narrow. But if we keep getting our eyes focused over here and over there and we look behind us all the time, what's going to happen to our straight and narrow testimony? It's going to be very crooked, very wobbly. It's going to present a sloppy, agape testimony to the world. So our vision must be clear, single-mindedly fixed on our eternal state with Christ rather than our temporary resources, our riches, and our relationships on earth. Salvation is free, but discipleship is very costly. He says uh, he would not have us to be ignorant about the cost. All right, so we must not look down. And, and focus on present comforts. We must not look ahead to future worldly riches, and we must not look behind at past relationships. Instead, ladies, where are we to look? Straight ahead or straight up. I look up and I say, oh, wouldn't it be a pretty day for Jesus to come? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are to keep our focus up on the one who saved us from eternal destruction. And we are to say to him, each and every one of us should say this, Yes, I will follow you at all costs to my own self-interest. You gave your best for me. You kept your face like flint on the cross. You did that for me. I am going to lay aside all excuses 
and I am going to give my very best for you. Whatever years, whatever days you give me, I'm going to give you my very best. That should be our prayer, and I hope that it can be for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be able to say with Paul, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I pray that each woman here this morning will see her need, if she hasn't already, to make a thorough, unflinching, wholehearted choice to be your disciple. May we aim at nothing less than full commitment in all that we do for you. May we be willing, Lord, to do anything, to suffer anything, to give up anything for Christ's sake. I know that it will cost us something for a few fleeting years, but great will be the reward we will receive in heaven. So help us to keep our eyes focused on the celestial city and eternity spent with you. For we pray these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.